Today's podcast is my conversation with Jay Cohn Gilbert, who is doing a lot of really fascinating work around rethinking capitalism to have it be more equitable, but also just with a, a wider focus on what we value and what we expect out of the capital or really the economic system. And during our conversation, many times I wondered if he was fully understanding what I was saying. And while this was true for some moments, re-listening to the conversation is clear to me how many times it was I who was not understanding what he was saying. I think the failure of communication was in large part a failure of imagination as I struggled to comprehend how completely this reorientation would alter the format of our economic system. Uh, Every time I really listen to this conversation, I discover something new, and I hope it will be as illuminating for you as it was for me. Well, hello, hello. I'm here with a a good friend of mine, Jay Cohen-Gilbert, who currently is the CEO of Imperative 21. And he actually, he has a very extensive background in a lot of things, which I'm sure we'll get into. So I actually didn't know this, Jay. You you grew up in New York City. That that totally went over my head. I did, yeah. How, How long were you in New York City? Till I was 18, till I went away to college. Just a whole 18? Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my parents were split when I was pretty young. And so my dad lived in Manhattan. My mom lived in Riverdale. And so I split time between, between both. And, uh, but I was there through 18. And then when I, the first four years, three or four years out of college, I came back to New York and worked there for three or four years before moving to Philly. If there was one, what would you say the biggest takeaway from living in New York was? Mm. Or maybe lasting impact either or? Yeah, I, I would say, I would say for me, the most, the coolest thing about New York is the incredible diversity of everything. I've, I've had the good fortune being able to travel a lot around the world. And I don't think there's any city in the world that, that compares to New York uh, with the potential exception of London with, with that feels as global. And what I like even more about New York, I, I don't know London as well, so it may be, but is um, like I could walk around New York for a day and probably hear a dozen languages being spoken um, and, and not necessarily by tourists, you know, and, and you can walk five blocks in this direction or five blocks in that direction and be in an, like in an incredibly different and fully contained ecosystem of culture and uh, language and food and energy. And that's, I love that sort of kinetic energy. And, and so for me, that's like the defining characteristic of New York is it's it's a really global metropolitan city and with a lot of contrasts that you have to work very hard to not see, which means that if you grow up in New York, you're going to see a lot of shit. And, and that's probably going to shape your worldview uh, in lots of different ways, some that you plan and some that you don't. And so for me, that's like the biggest, the biggest thing and also a big thing I miss about, about that kind of living. And I think you're so right to, to point out how pocketed it is because it's not, it's not sort of exactly the same level of diversity everywhere you are. It, wherever you go, it's going to change. And 
I remember a couple months ago, this might have even been pre-pandemic now that I think about it. I was biking around and and I was biking in Manhattan and then I think I must have been in in Queens. I, I crossed the bridge yeah. and suddenly everything was different. And in the sense that instead of skyscrapers and fancy buildings, it was much less fancy. And I had a good conversation with my friend about it. And he said, yeah, because that's where the people who who service Manhattan live. And and yeah, it was just a real eye-opening experience in just in terms of how New York functions in a lot of ways. For sure. You know, like they, they say it about geography, they could say it about, I mean, you say that, say, they say it about, about retail, uh, or you could say it about civilizations, but like location, 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 you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, like yeah. geography is destiny, you know, and um, anyway, that's like a little trailhead to a whole different conversation. But Absolutely. Like, yeah. It, 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 um, it would be great if that weren't the case, or if it were less the case that our zip code that we couldn't predict as much as we could predict right now about what your life might look like depending upon what zip code you know you know and that that's i think a uh, that's not a good trait of our country at the moment um and so 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 after new york city you went to was it stan did you start at stanford or did you transfer yeah, in yeah. so I, I went to college at stanford so i was out in california and then i i got a job back in new york Working for McKinsey and Company. McKinsey, yeah, yeah, and I was there in their analyst program, and I and I barely squeaked through, you know, and uh, and and I went from there, and then had a succession of of three gigs over a two or three year period, working for a child welfare agency called Graham Wyndham, which current listeners might uh, know from Hamilton fame because it was, it's it's Alexander Hamilton's wife who started. The, that it's the oldest uh, and now I think one of the largest child welfare agencies, like foster care agencies in the country. And and so if you listen to the lyrics in Hamilton, it talks about her going on to start what she called an orphanage, which is what there was called at the time, because obviously Hamilton uh, is his back, sort of an honor of him. And so and so that I, I was an assistant to the CEO, uh, a woman named Joyce LePen at Graham Wyndham. And then I, uh, I, I left to work for the mayor's office, for Mayor Dinkins, when he was mayor in his office of drug abuse policy, and then followed the guy who ran that to a nonprofit uh, leadership development program called Coro um, that's still around today that does le- leadership training for people in public affairs. And so um, uh, I follow. I, so I had those three gigs over over a relatively short window. And then uh, uh, moved down to Philly to start a company called And One uh, back in back in '93, and so that's when, that's when I left New York, and 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 I've been in Philly ever since. So just based off of that, it sounds like maybe McKinsey and Company was a real wake up call for what you did and what you didn't want to do in life. You know, like I, I um, I, it's not that I hated working at McKinsey at all. Like I, there's plenty of interesting work, you know, and. Um, if you like to solve problems and like, it's a, it's a good place to do that. Right. And, and I learned a ton. I, you know, the main reason to go there was to learn skills. My mom was a headhunter. And when I, I went through the interview process with consulting companies more as a, as a, an exercise to see if you could, if I could test myself against 
if that's where all the best and the brightest were going back in the mid to late 80s, like that in finance, and I had no interest in going to finance and working for an investment bank. Consulting was like, oh, that might be a, the tolerable alternative to the elite track. And uh, and so I did the interviews, didn't think I'd get very far. I was like an East Asian studies major, which had yeah, I saw that. nothing to do with anything. But I, I, I did well, I guess, enough in the interviews that they offered me a job. And my mom, who, again, placed people for a living in, in executive positions, said, you'd be an idiot not to take a job with McKinsey because that's going to be on your resume forever. And it's going to give you great training and you use it for whatever you want to do. You want to go do nonprofit work? You want to do whatever, like, which is what I wanted to do at the time? Uh, it's going to give you incredible skills. And so I took her advice and took the job and learned a bunch of great skills, a bunch that I still use. But it was also very clear that it was not a lifestyle that I had any interest in. Like I, I looked at the partners who I was working for as, an, as a lowly analyst, you know, and I was like, so I could I could work my ass off for like another 10 years. And if I'm lucky and really, really good, I would get to be you. And I'm looking at your life and I don't really want to be you. And so uh, it, it was not a hard decision to, to say no to going back to, you know, they, they pay for business school and you have to come back and do another couple of years. And I was like, yeah, I, I don't really want to do another couple of years of that. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. So then I guess just fast forwarding through the next many years. So you so you co-founded uh, And One, which for anyone who doesn't know, huge basketball foot, foot basketball footwear apparel and entertainment company, which rivaled adidas and nike at one point right yeah yeah it was it was the number two basketball company in the u.s and and globally and in a, in, in a bunch of markets the number one company and in, in other in other non-us markets and it was an awesome run like we had a blast and uh and did that from like 93 to 05 and we sold the company in 05 so then this was when you made your hard shift and you co-founded B-Lab in 2006. And I, I think it's such a great story about that, that realization. Do you want to, do you want to say anything about that? Well, it, it was, I'd say less of a hard shift than a slow migration because and one had, had always done a lot of really cool stuff as it, as it relates to what at the time you might've called socially responsible business. And it had always given 5% of its profits to charity, which amounted to several million dollars. Uh, it was an awesome place to work. Everybody who worked there for over a year had stock options that, that made a real difference in people's lives after we sold the, sold the business. And we had third-party audited code of conduct with all our factories overseas at a time when that wasn't particularly common and certainly wasn't common for a company that nobody really paid attention to. And so we were really proud of the company that we worked for um, or built, you know, and it was like a slow evolution of, well, what more could we do on that front? You know, like how much more good could you do through this one vehicle? And what became clear was that there was some stuff that I was interested in doing where Anwan wasn't really the right vehicle for that anymore. And, and as I was learning about other business models from other entrepreneurs for whom purpose was sitting even more powerfully at the center and maybe as part of their origin story, that I was really attracted to that. And so I had started to, to, to research that kind of things and bring some of those things into, into Anwan. And eventually Anwan had its carrying capacity for that. And it also had, had run its course, like our partnership had run its course. The company hit some, hit some you know, challenging times. And we were looking at either we'd have to double down for another 10 years or probably sell it. And, and we all decided 
that the doubling down uh, for another 10 years would have probably strained the relationships that we were in as a partner group more than we wanted them to. And so we valued the partnership more than whatever the incremental amount of money that we might have gotten. And so we, we made a decision that we were going to sell the business. And that was also like uh, reasonable timing for me because it, it allowed me to then begin mentally transitioning to what would be next. And out of that emerged what is now like B corporations and the nonprofit B lab that supports me. You are able to extrapolate from what you are doing with and one a way of being for companies and then put that into practice with with b lab yeah and, and like the easiest way to talk about that transition is in b lab's very sorry in, in and one's very first business plan it said that we were going to give five percent of our profits to charity and so that was always a, a part of what we did and like most entrepreneurs who don't give this much thought the good you can do is typically how do you use them? How do you how do you distribute the money you make? Right? How can you be gen, how can you be generous? And that's that's not a bad thing. In fact, it can be really awesome. And 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 one did a bunch of really cool things with its charitable giving, including supporting. Like I think the best thing was supporting the birth of a public charter school in Philadelphia called Kip. That I know Kip. Yeah. You know when we when we first partnered with them, you know they were one fifth grade classroom. Or you know, one one fifth grade with three classrooms and a hundred total kids, and now they're on their way to forty four hundred kids across six schools, all all of whom are three times more likely to go to and complete college than kids who grow up in the same neighborhoods and don't get a kid education. And and one was the very first major gift that they got. We gave them a half million dollars of unrestricted money over a five year period to match basically what they needed to run their business on top of whatever they got from from the city. That was a huge deal. It made a it's made a really big difference in, in, in thousands of, of kids' lives and, and, and families in Philadelphia. And so when I read about Stonyfield Farm and Tom's of Maine and Ben and Jerry's and Patagonia, and, and they were all giving 10% of their profits to charity, I was like, oh, 10 is twice as good as five. We should, <laughs> we should do that, you know? And, and that didn't go over so well that we didn't, we, you know, that, 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 that was never approved. And as I explored more, I realized that I was, I was consuming an awful lot of salad and I was only consuming a lot of salad because there was this amazing salad dressing called Newman's own that I love. And on the bottle of the Newman's own was this awesome little logo. It was like a heart with, with like dollar sign through it. So it was like a heart money logo. And as I found out more about Newman's own and most people know now they give a hundred percent of their profits to charity. And I was like, well, a hundred percent, that's 10 times better than 10%, you know? And and so like the the energy of it was oh what if we had what if there were a whole bunch of Newman's own in in other categories not just salad dressing and popcorn and lemonade you know but for any industry and what if you had a whole portfolio of companies or a whole sector of the economy that was like a Newman sector full of Newman companies that were doing that and that was the original idea which was like all these companies that were going to become these evergreen engines for charitable giving and that was really the first idea. And, and pursued that for a, for a while. And as, as we articulated that, or I articulated that and, and started to talk to others, a bunch of other entrepreneurs and investors helped me see like very graciously my, my myopia, right? Like my, my, you talk about like blind spot, like my blind spot was, well, the way you do good is to give your money away. You make your money over here and however you make it, and then you give it away over there. And if you give away more, that's better. And my, my first big blind spot was how much money you give away is not only 
not the only way a company has an impact on the world, but probably not the most important way. Uh, de definitely not the most important way that a company has an impact on the world. And so out of that knowledge, right, out of that awareness, the concept of a Newman Venture, which by then had become a B Corp because we couldn't call it a Newman Venture because Paul Newman said he wanted nothing to do with it. Um, so we had to come up with another name. And so, so it was called a B Corp. Um, that concept for a B Corp that started around like philanthropy, like broadened into a much bigger idea around what are all the different ways business can be used as a force for good, charity included, but also how you treat your people, you know, what kind of a, how, how you impact your community, what kind of a steward of the environment you are. And so all of those things become baked into what became a B Corp. Right. And so now B Corp is a third party who, who will rate uh, different corporations on how they score in a variety of socially beneficial categories, but but not not just social, but environmental for their workers and all of that. Yeah, that's right. And actually, the only difference is like B Lab is the name of the nonprofit that does the certification, right? Yes. And B Corps are the companies that that like earn that certification. So like you can be fair trade, or uh, you can be a fair trade product, and that just is talking about your product. Uh, but if you earn B Corp certification, that's talking about your whole company, all of your practices, not just the product that you make. And B Lab actually. It sounds like you pioneered and engineered the the legislation that made B corporations a, a reality. And so again, just to be more like precise. <laughs> yeah, of course, please. And maybe more confusing is B Corp is a certification that is conferred by the nonprofit B Lab. The legislation that you're talking about is definitely something that B Lab did. And that legislation, which is often shorthanded to B Corp as well, is legislation that is technically called a benefit corporation. And the relationship between the two is to earn certification, companies have to meet a performance standard, like a minimum verified performance and they have to be transparent about their performance. And they also have to do this other thing, which is they have to actually legally amend their corporate governing documents so that they actually expand the fiduciary duties of their directors. So they're now legally obligated to balance profit and purpose, right? They're, they're legally obligated to consider the impact of their decisions, not only on their shareholders, which is what a traditional corporation has to do, but they have to consider their impact on all their stakeholders. So like their workers, their suppliers, their community, the environment, um, their customers. And so that really changes the legal DNA of the company to be a company that is evolved from a company that is playing the game of shareholder capitalism to a company that's playing the game of stakeholder capitalism, which is to say, who is this company for? A traditional company is, exists for the benefit of shareholders. B corporations exist for the benefit of all stakeholders. That's what the B stands for, is for the benefit. And so that legal piece that every certified B Corp has to do can be met in a bunch of different ways, depending on the type of company you are, an LLC, a corporation, a partnership, whatever. And so what we did is we passed laws in now, I think, almost 38 or 40 states uh, and, and another half dozen countries around the world to create a distinct legal entity that is, is purpose built as a stakeholder corporation from the beginning. So it's not like Jerry Rig. So it's not like you're like, I know you're pretty handy. I know you can fix a bike. So you could, you could technically take a road bike or maybe vice versa. You could probably take a road bike and stick different tires on it and go off road a little bit. But you're probably not doing too much single track because the frame can't handle it. You know? And so similarly, you can take a regular company and start doing purposeful things, but it's not really built for that. And you're going to end up ultimately breaking something. And so the Benefit Corporation was a specific legal entity that was designed 
specifically for the purpose of off-roading from the main from the main economy and saying we're going to build a different road and that road is going to be we exist to create value for all of our stakeholders and that's baked into the legal DNA of the company from incorporation so it's it's in the it's in the governing documents from the beginning and so by having a distinct legal entity that makes it much easier for for CEOs and their lawyer advisors and their accountant advisors and their boards of directors and their investors to adopt it because it isn't like some jerry-rigged one-off weird thing over there that I got to go into this wacky nonprofit's website and see what the hell they're talking about and why would I believe them and what do they know? They don't know as much as I do. But if, but if it's actually been like it's gone through the Bar Association and it's been passed by the legislature and it's been signed by the governor, it has a lot more credibility, which is why now there's over 10,000 uh, registered benefit corporations around the world, including raising billions of dollars of venture capital and going public and all the rest of it, because it, it's much more credible if it's sitting in the state corporate code than if it's yeah. sitting on a website of some random nonprofit in Pennsylvania. I was blown away just just reading into how expansive the the whole benefit corporation network has become and you know how many businesses and and ventures have have gotten into it. So I guess now we arrive at 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 the most recent chapter which is so you start Imperative 21 and I have my notes here so I don't screw it up. So it's a business-led network about resetting essentially resetting capitalism. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, that's fair. A lot, lot, there, there are lots of people who don't even like the word capitalism. And so we were, we were quite intentional about talking about a resetting of the economic system because uh, there's some people, particularly folks your age and younger, and also not in the US, who aren't persuaded that capitalism is something we need to hold on to. And, so, and there are others, of course, who think that if you don't say the word capitalism, then you're a, a total socialist nut job. Right, yeah. <laughs> who's going to lead the country and the world into, into the pits of despair and Stalinist hell. And, and, so, and so we try to finesse that a little bit at Imperative 21 because it's a broad network and a broad coalition. And so we lead with a reset of the economic system and we talk about to accelerate the transition to stakeholder capitalism. And so when we do, we do anchor it in capitalism, but with that that uh, adjective that that are, are never to be decoupled, that that sort of signal that this is a very this is different than your dad's capitalism, you yeah. know. <laughs> and and uh, but we don't sort of lead that way because there's a lot of uh, you know the majority of the majority of young people, not just in the U.S. but around the world, really don't believe in capitalism, and that that has lots of implications, and and there's lots of good food for for thought there. What I like my favorite quote on that, or my favorite is, I got I had the real privilege of having a chance to talk with a woman named Ursula Burns, who was the first African American woman to become the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. She became the CEO of Xerox. And as we were talking about our work in Imperial 21 and whether she'd be interested in uh, advising us, she said, "Well, I'll tell you what. I'm the most anti-capitalist capitalist you're ever going to meet." And I thought that was like a beautifully encapsulated frame, which is as as a woman and as a black woman, she's very clear on what hasn't worked and what doesn't currently work about the current economic system, uh, intentionally or unintentionally, with whatever implicit biases exist around uh, uh, people versus capital and the rest. But she's also risen to the highest you know, the highest office in the land, if you will, uh, as a CEO of a major Fortune 500 company, 
And I think at the time she was the vice chair of the business roundtable, right? Which is the trade group of the 200 largest companies in the US. And so she's been in every seat of power that you could possibly have. And so she's capitalist, right? And she recognizes the, the positive power that the capitalist economic system has. And so I think she very succinctly summarized the, the sort of the creative tension in trying to have a capitalism that some would call a more conscious capitalism or more inclusive capitalism or stakeholder capitalism that actually puts people at the center, not profit, right? That you, uses profits to serve people rather than, rather than uses people to create profits. I actually read your, well, I know you have a few articles, but one of your articles in the Philadelphia Citizen, and I, I thought it was interesting how you, so you talked about capitalism's rise, starting with like the British East India Company and and how it's progressed. And it's, I just thought it was interesting that you said that it was broken from the start. Yeah. It, it, it's, not, it's not that it's been corrupted along the way. It's that it never worked, but it's, it's like a festering wound. It's only recently that we've, we can see the full extent of the damage. Yeah. And, and I, had, I think I had written that after successful treatment for cancer. Mm, and yeah. so I was very much thinking about my own health. And the metaphor, I think, was around it was sort of has become a metastasized cancer. And that feels like what's been happening with the sort of the dark underbelly of a capitalist system that was that was created to generate wealth for very few people, you know, and it's been quite extractive throughout that history. But yeah, it's like I think the, the most succinct way that I've heard people say is it's not that the it's not that the economic system is broken. It's that it's that the economic system is is doing what is it was designed to do. And, and that reframing is painful to, to sit with, right? Because none of us want to think of ourselves as like complicit with anything bad, you know, or, or perpetrators of anything bad, or that our dads or our grandparents, you know, were, were doing something bad just by working hard and trying to get ahead and provide for their kids. And so without, without laying any blame on any individuals, what we have is a system that was set up in a way that privileged and advantaged very few people. And those advantages compound like interest over generations and create massive inequities uh, that we now talk about as racial wealth gap and other gaps, pay gaps and gender equity gaps and all, gender pay gaps, all those kinds of things. I, I do, I, I would love just to maybe interrogate the, yeah. the whole perspective. So I, I guess the first thing that I thought about is when when it feels so much like there is this immense international competition, the first thing that came up for me is how is how are benefit corporations sustainable given that it often feels like the most amoral companies have a competitive edge, right? So if if we are factoring in environmental regulations and workers pay and all of that how how is that going to be a sustainable model competing with other countries globally sure or companies globally so 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 a couple things one is um uh about the research that would disprove the hypothesis that it's not competitive to run your business that way right and so that one thing is which would just be under the headline of the business case you know and and then the other part that i would want to interrogate is um, examining 
the premise of of your question, which is that the purpose of business is to maximize profits, which I think is a faulty premise for what the purpose of business should be. So on the first front, there are hundreds of research studies from people like Goldman Sachs and McKinsey and, you know, like just all people that people should find far more credible than me. Um, that all of which say that if you if you run your business with a stakeholder orientation, if you run your business like paying attention to environmental, social, and governance issues or ESG issues in the language of investors, uh, it's going to be better for your shareholders in the long run. And the in the long run is a really important time dimension that anchors that whole argument. But that whole argument says, and and most of the biggest investors in the world from like BlackRock to State Street to Vanguard to Fidelity to the pension funds, you know, et cetera, are all have already made that jump, that intellectual jump and said, yep, um, there's a positive correlation between stakeholder management and financial performance, right? And so the underlying premise is, oh, if you do this, it's going to hurt your performance. Uh, research says not true. The second thing and the more the more to me interesting thing is even asking that question means that you're defining success as what makes the most money. And uh, if I think about what makes for a good society, and I know you well enough to know that you're like, you know, uh, a wannabe philosopher king, right? Like, you know, you, <laughs> that, you, that you've got a really broad interest and you're going to yeah. ask deeper, deeper fundamental questions, you know. And the deeper fundamental question is, what's the purpose of business? Yeah. You know, or what's the what or what's the good life that you want to lead? And so if the life you want to lead is one that just maximizes your your money, well, they have lots of good stories about that. And I'd like you to meet Ebenezer Scrooge. I'd like you to meet Midas and <laughs> like, like, you know, or, or read a good poem about Ozymandias. You know, like there's history is littered with examples of folks who who um, oriented their life towards accumulation of wealth and it mostly doesn't end well you know um, it doesn't end well for those individuals doesn't really end well for those societies you know um, and and so it's also like just forget about that more philosophical thing just personally it isn't the most joyful place to be for me it isn't where I find the most fulfill, fulfillment and meaning and so like for me my life is most uh, fulfilling when I feel most connected to other people. And it's hard to feel connected to people when you're in a one-way relationship. And it's not a, a relationship that's, that's, that, that has founded on mutual respect and care uh, and love. And so an economic system that has you as my boss and the, our only relationship is how much productivity can you squeeze from me to make you as much money as possible like that's an asymmetrical relationship that isn't going to breed connection and affection and care, you know? Um, and so I don't want to be the worker, you know, the entry level worker in that relationship. And honestly, I don't even want to be the boss because even as the boss, that basically says it limits my humanity to say, the only thing I care about is money. And that that's a very shallow pool to play in. For life, and it reduces me 
to something like homo economicus. You know, it, it reduces me to somebody who only thinks about the economic value of things. And, um, and that's not how I value people and, and life. And when I go for hikes in the, in the woods or in the mountains, like that's pretty nice. That's a pretty nice, I'd rather live in a world that has trees, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, or has mountaintops in West Virginia, you know, uh, or has rivers we can fish in or swim in, or doesn't have tens of millions of climate refugees um, putting stresses on our, our political system and our education system and our, you know, et cetera. And so if I want all those things and I want an economic system that can be in right relationship with the people who it's supposed to serve and the natural world on which its health depends. Cause you can't have healthy business. You can't have a healthy economy in unhealthy with unhealthy natural systems because everything flows from the natural system, you know? Um, and so our current system is just way, way out of balance, you know? Um, and that happens sometimes like, you know, we all do stuff that get, we all eat too much, drink too much, party too much, whatever, run too much, work out too much. I don't know what you're much. talking about. Never done yeah, any I, of those I, things. I remember, I remember your Jaws workouts in high school, brother. So I know, <laughs> I know that you can overdo it. And like, but, but then we all, we just have to calibrate back, you know? And so like the pendulum has swung a little bit too far into an economy that's basically based on financialization and speculation and accumulation. And that leads to some un, un, unbalanced, unbalanced lives and unbalanced economy. And that leaves lots of people in very precarious situations. So when something does happen that's disruptive, like COVID, it has massively negative effects. And, that are, and those effects are disproportionately borne by those most vulnerable. And which goes back to the prior part of the conversation about a system that was designed to be extractive and leave many vulnerable so it could extract as much wealth and pull it into the center, um, which is why we have such disparate racial impact of COVID because the majority of people working essential jobs who had to go to work, who couldn't do, who couldn't do zoom every day, you know, who couldn't social distance, you know, or et cetera, were mostly black and Brown, you know, and, uh, and mostly immigrant or first gen or uh, low income, you know? And so um, we see the inequities of that system played out in like sharp relief over the last 15 or 16 months. Um, not to mention the climate stuff that's always been there and that is we're now seeing uh, a little bit more attention paid to as we enter like the the uh, you know the fire season and the and the and the, you know the hurricane season you know um, and so it's that that like we the good news is there's all kinds of great momentum to envision a new economic system and new ways that we relate to each other and there's there's thousands and thousands of examples of companies big and small in every industry here and in many countries doing incredible things. And what uh, and what those B corporations are doing or what all those folks that are part of the Empiricoin network are doing is they're helping to light a path forward to what that reset economic system looks like. So it isn't just like science fiction, right? It's actually happening now and we can buy stuff from those companies and we can invest in those companies and we can go to work for those companies. And, um, and it's a lot more fulfilling yeah. to do that. So I guess here's my, I guess my follow-up question to that is, so I, I've, I had an interesting conversation with my friend a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about the outsourcing of jobs to China and he was saying, I don't really know if we want those jobs in the first place, right? Are we really trying to compete 
compete for these low skilled, low pay jobs? And, and is that, you know, instead of maybe competing the way, say, Germany does, but at the same time, making that transition, which I think would have to be necessary, right? If you're, if you're transitioning, the costs are going to rise if you're starting to factor in your workers and the environment, all those things. So it, it seems like there would be a massive damage to at least short term damage in, in sense of uh, creative destruction to the sort of unskilled labor class, which ironically is sort of the same group of people that that maybe um, benefit corporations are, 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 are looking to protect. So what do, we, what do we do there, right? Because I think oftentimes there can be talk about, you know, re- retraining these 45-year-old manufacturer worker, manufacturing workers to be IT specialists. And it, it just maybe it misses the reality of the situation. Yeah. I mean, the labor stuff is really complicated. And I don't pretend to be an expert. I think one of the things to be careful of is is how we label certain jobs and certain workers, right? Like, like there are lots of uh, service sector jobs that that when we needed them, we labeled them essential. We called them essential workers, and we stood out on our balconies and we applauded them for making sure we had groceries and delivering the mail and putting their lot and driving the buses uh, that took us around. Um, to keep us fed and safe. And those aren't knowledge economy computer jobs. And and human beings' self-worth isn't about whether they have the ability to do or the desire to do uh, uh, jobs that are uh, white-collar computer screen jobs. Like there's incredible dignity in actual uh, labor, you know, um, my brother-in-law is a pipe fitter and uh, my stepdad, my stepdad, my, my, my um, father-in-law was a coal miner and a truck driver. And we just have to be careful about being really dismissive of, of people that are, that are in those jobs and, and, and having it feel like, well, if you're not doing this kind of stuff with this kind of education, et cetera, then you're, you're, you're less skilled, which feels pretty demeaning as opposed to just being that they're not, they're not valued. But the, the, the overarching question that I think you're asking is, there, there's nothing about the, the B Corp model or benefit corporations that says you can't have global supply chains, right? That, that you can't manufacture in China or whatever. But like, I used to have factory, there were, I, I used to employ at M1 10,000 22 to 25 year old women in Shenzhen province in China. And I walked on those factory floors and I've been in those dormitories, and I know that there are some factories uh, that have uh, good, better, or best, and some that have poor working conditions and standards that are unhealthy for the workers. Um, and uh, and I don't want to be the owner of a company that contracts for that kind of thing because it's cheaper, but screws those ten thousand young women. You know, like, I don't want to be that guy. Just like I don't want to buy a pair of shoes that came out of that factory because I don't want to be that guy either. You know, because then when I'm walking around in those shoes, I'm kind of walking around on them. You know, and 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 so I think that the 
the danger of like globalized supply chain and a globalized economy and is that we lose sight of the impact of our economic decisions and so when 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 all the stuff was grown made distributed etc in a local community you knew where the stuff came from and you probably went to had to go to church with them or you were in school with them or you were at the local whatever at some point during so you interacted with people and so you had to like be in relationship but if your stuff just comes from somewhere over there and when you're done using it you throw it out and it goes somewhere over there it's just that this it's, it's a very disposable invisible economy that has very visible impacts uh and and so it's not about whether or not you jobs go to china or mexico or wherever they go the issue is what kind of jobs, right? And are they are they good quality jobs here? Are they good quality jobs there? Do they support um, a good quality of life for all the people that are creating the world that we want to live in? Or is it just like, no, no, I just want to get my stuff fast. I want to get it cheap and I want it to be convenient. And that's really all I care about. And like that's and anything else is somebody else's problem. It's the market. If the market could, if, if the market wanted something else to happen, it would have something else happen. I think that's like an incredibly arrogant, self-centered, myopic view of the world that completely ignores uh, the fact that there is no such thing as an invisible hand or a free market, and there never has been, right? That humans shape markets through the policies and regulation, regulatory environment, including the rule of law that governs our behavior in that marketplace. And so we are the citizens of that of that of that economy we are the citizens of the governments that make those rules and so uh and we are the people that take money out of our pocket to pay for something and the fact that we if you choose to be ignorant that's your choice but then you can't tell me that the market is doing this you're doing this because you're choosing willful ignorance because it's too much of a pain in the ass or it's too painful to think about what the actual economic consequences of your decisions are you know, and so um, I think it's a uh, I think it's a cowardly place to hide is to hide behind the 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 the, the veneer of an intellectual argument about free markets. Yeah, well, just I, just to clarify, um, when I say low skilled, I, I just mean the amount of training required to fill the position. Uh, I've, I've worked on a farm. I've worked as a cashier. I've worked as a bagger. And frankly, I stopped doing those because they're really, really hard. So I'm not, I didn't, I don't want that to come off as an argument about the the value of those jobs or, or anything like that. It was more just that if, if labor costs rise in the U S those are going to be the first jobs to go. And so that's where we're going to see the displacement. And and I don't know what those people do afterwards if there isn't something to replace it. Yeah, but Jonah, but Jonah, like, like, like you're making very broad economic statements. I don't know. Hold water. I'm not an economist. But like when labor costs rise, low wage jobs will be the first to be destroyed. Right. That's the argument you just made. I have no idea if that's true. You know, like wages have been largely stagnant in the U.S. for 40 years. 
while corporate profits have gone through the roof. And the result is like massively escalating inequality because all the economic value has been sucked into the top 1% or the top one-tenth of 1%. Like that's just how the economic system has been designed. And when we, when we allow it to be financialized and all the profits to be, uh, all the costs to be externalized and all the profits to be concentrated in the financial sector, like it's, there's plenty of studies on immigration. Oh, if immigrants come in, they're going to depress wages and they're going to, uh, and they're going to uh, steal our jobs. Neither are true, right? High immigration countries don't see wages. When Walmart comes to town, wages tend to go down and jobs tend to get destroyed, but that's the free market, you know? And, and, and so uh, we're thrilled to support Walmart, but uh, who actually, that actually can have negative impacts on communities and jobs and, and, and local wages. Um, and then we make specious arguments about immigrants as an example. Um, which economists will tell you isn't true. And the same thing around like, oh, if we raise the minimum wage, those costs will either be passed on to consumers or uh, they'll have to hire fewer people because the companies can't afford them. Much of the literature says that isn't true, right? There are plenty of companies, including like Amazon, that went to like $15 an hour, you know? And they've got, they're more profitable than ever. They're, they've got, as I forget what the other, there are several other companies that have gone to like a $15 an hour or CVS, I think might've been the other one. I don't really remember. Um, and they've got people clamoring for those jobs because they're a job that actually can pay close to a living wage, you know? And so right now there's like a, there's like a, people talk about a job shortage in the U S right now coming out of COVID. There's a lot of empty jobs. And the reframing of that is it's a wage shortage. And so companies that are offering reasonable wages have plenty of people, they got waitlist, they got plenty of people applying for those jobs. Companies that are, that are, are uh, not willing to pay people a reasonable wage don't have a lot of people applying for the jobs because people have decided that their, their time is worth more than that. You know? Um, and so I just, I just don't know that the, that like just drawing supply and demand curves and saying that like, if, if wages go up, people will be on people will be unemployed. Is like an is like a uh, it feels like at best an academic argument that is ignoring what is it what is it we want the economy to do. I don't care the like I'm not interested in having an economy that has great clearing mechanism for prices and supply and demand. That's like an academic exercise. I'm interested in an economy that actually creates right livelihoods for people that recognizes people's inherent dignity as human beings and gives them an opportunity to provide for themselves, the people they love and make a contribution to our communities. Like that's what I want the economy to do. So let's talk about how an economy does that and not worry about academic arguments about, about supply and demand and, and clearing prices. So I was reading online about how B Corp uh, vets companies and it talked about maximizing benefit for society and i thought inherent in that is going to be whatever your biases are about what is socially beneficial do you see that at all of course there's bias everywhere so for for sure the 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 purpose of the b corp certification is to help like smooth that out a little bit because the way in which b lab develops its standards 
isn't just like Jay sitting in the corner, like coming up with whatever Jay likes as a B Corp, right? Like there's an independent standards advisory council full of experts around worker issues, environmental issues, et cetera, et cetera, who together develop and amend uh, those standards over time. We're now going on version 6.0 of the standards. So the only thing we say we know about our standards at B-Lab is that they're wrong. And, and, and so they have to version like software, right? As you, re- as you recognize your blind spots or your omissions or, or, or the things you just got wrong. And that happens all the time. And so, I, I, and, and there's also like huge public comment periods as B-Lab re- reevaluates the standards where they get thousands of uh, uh, instances of input from global experts and consumers and workers or whomever wants to comment and says, either yeah, you're missing this, you got this wrong, the way you phrase this uh, allows, uh, you know, has huge loopholes in it that, that aren't, are gonna create unintended consequences. And so like all that, the most important thing about the standards is the process by which they are governed and evolve over time. And so it's no different than the first idea for B-Lab, as we talked about before, was just like, oh, just how much money are you giving to charity? That's the measure, right? And so from that point to what we have now is a massive shift that is an example of reflecting like a healthy learning process, right? It's a learning organization uh, that says, that shows up with the humility of, yep, we know we got it wrong. We just can't wait for you to tell us what we got wrong so we can improve it for the next go around, you know? And that's the same spirit that the B Corps themselves have, which is the spirit of continuous improvement, you know? Um, so anyway, so I'd say there's that. And the other piece of it is, again, so, so the one is the process by which we let builds the standards. And the other thing is that the standards are comprehensive, right? So, so you may come into this and say, I just care about people and worker rights and labor unions. And so I think that those are the most important standards in that. And I want to be B Corp because I'm like the greatest worker-owned cooperative in the history of man, right? And, um, but you can't be a B Corp even if you earned 100% of all the available points in the worker section of the B Impact Assessment. The way, the way the scoring methodology works is you have to achieve a minimum level of sort of competency across all the five major impact areas of a business, across all those five stakeholder groups. And every this company may excel in environmental stuff. This company may excel in community engagement. This company may excel in worker stuff, but none of them can be egregiously off <laughs> in any of them. Um, and then on top of that, because we know all the standards are wrong, you also have that legal structure that we talked about, which means that now your shareholders have the ability to bring a right of action in a court of law to say, um, I don't think you're living up to your stated purpose to create benefit for all your stakeholders. And now I have, and here's all the proof I've got. And they, they, they have legal standing to bring that into, into a court, which no other company has other than the B Corp. Yeah, I, I honestly I hadn't thought of that. And, and that actually, now that I do think about it, might be the most, it, it's sort of the fail safe in the technology is the ability for, outside individuals to litigate clear just to be clear it's share it's shareholders it's not out it's right outside yeah. of the outside of b labs yeah yeah sure it was outside, and, it's, and it's, it's a shareholder of any company like be like so what i'd say is there's sort of like there's two there's two wings to the to this bird and without both of them they don't fly which is you've got performance standards that say uh this is credible performance has been verified by a third party. It's not just the company saying 
look at how cool I am, look at all the things I do. And those standards are comprehensive, right? But knowing those standards are imperfect and the people reviewing them are imperfect and all the things, and they got millions of blind spots, you have a legal structure that creates accountability via shareholders to say, um, I need this to go to, I want this, I'm going to bring a lawsuit that says you're not actually uh, walking your talk. By the same token, if all you did was the legal structure, but you didn't have performance standards, then you'd have a glorified piece of paper, but no methodology to assess whether or not the company is actually doing what it says it does. It just has a board of directors that has a responsibility to consider stakeholder interests, but it doesn't have any management systems that are aligned with that. And so if all you did was the legal, you have no management systems or verified performance. If all you do is the performance, you have that operating in a legal structure that actually doesn't value stakeholders, only value shareholders. So you're going to be pretty constrained in what kind of stakeholder value you can create when, when the when your board of directors says, I'm not allowed to care about that or else I'll get sued. <laughs> you know, and so that so they actually really work well together because the standards are imperfect and the legal is insufficient. Yeah. And so then it seems that as with many systems, as there's more and more compliance or um, maybe maybe you use a different word, but more and more compliance to, to benefit corporations, it, it might increase the incentives or the, the benefit for, for those who don't conform to the benefit corporation. What, what, what happens there? It, would it make sense to make becoming a benefit corporation mandatory through, through like public regulation? Yeah, Jonah, that's a great question. So for 15 years, B-Lab resisted that thought and said voluntary opt-in, positive feedback loop, demonstration effect, reward the leaders. If you build it, they will come, like all of that energy. And there's now 4,000 you know, uh, certified B corporations all around the world, 10,000 registered benefit corporations. Uh, and the truth is it's not nearly enough. To make a dent in in a in an economy that's trillions of dollars, you know, big. Um, all at the same time, the inequality is rising, climate emergency is accelerating, democracy is threatened, like some pretty some pretty significant stuff. And so, um, and so recently, it was last last year actually, B Lab uh, made a big shift in its energy and said that uh, we need both, right? We need to like encourage and support and celebrate those who are leading the way while advocating for an elevated level playing field for everyone. Um, because one, adoption isn't fast enough, particularly with larger companies and in the financial markets. And we there is too much of an incentive to game the system uh, or uh, and there's too much of a of a of a um, a counter incentive, particularly in the financial markets, and that what we need is not just corporations to be governed this way, but we need the we need financial institutions to be governed this way at the same time. Because if you have, if you have corporations that say I'm legally obligated to to create value for all stakeholders, but their investors have a legal obligation to maximize returns for their shareholders, the shareholders win. And so uh, B-Lab did two things. It released a, a policy paper uh, calling for a transition from shareholder primacy to stakeholder capitalism, where it said, uh, we're advocating for over the next 10 years, 
that there will be uh, it will be a requirement for all companies over a certain size, uh, over a billion dollars in revenues. All companies over a certain size should be required to adopt benefit governance. Um, uh, and similarly, uh, that that same benefit governance should apply not only to the corporations, but also to the investors that invest in them. And that way you have alignment between the capital providers and the capital users, as opposed to them being like in tension. And so your instincts are right, is that um, uh, we don't think we'll get there uh, through just celebrating the leaders. We actually have to change the environment in which those leaders work. And, uh, and it's been demonstrated pretty clearly that a lot of the biggest players will not adopt this stuff voluntarily. And so as like just one, one example that I find pretty so funny, it makes me want to cry, is uh, the CEO of uh, JP Morgan, whose name is Jamie Dimon, was the, uh, the chairman or the, yeah, the chairman of the board of the Business Roundtable at the time when the Business Roundtable, and he was the driver of the Business Roundtable adopting their restatement of, of the purpose of the corporation that said that the, hey, we are committed to creating value for all stakeholders. It was a huge deal, not just in the US, but globally, that the 200 largest companies in the US, which are among the 200 largest in the world, were on the bandwagon for stakeholder capitalism. Um, there was a lot of concern that it was just a lot of words, wouldn't be backed up with anything concrete. And interestingly, earlier this year, uh, JP Morgan shareholders brought a, a shareholder resolution that said, hey, we're thrilled you love stakeholder capitalism. You should adopt stakeholder governance so you can actually uh, uh, do that um, and be accountable for doing that. And uh, JP Morgan uh, asked its lawyers uh, about it because they didn't even want to have that resolution being uh, uh, brought up at their annual shareholder meeting. And the lawyers said, you know what? You can't adopt that form of governance because your current form of governance says that you're obligated <laughs> to maximize return to shareholders, which yeah. is basically like saying it's circular. Yeah, it's completely circular. It's saying I can't eat pizza because I'm at McDonald's. And if I just weren't at McDonald's, I could eat pizza and just saying that, well, I'm, I guess I'm at McDonald's. So I, I just I'm not allowed to eat pizza. You know, it's just it's an absurd argument. And, and so J.P. Morgan, their CEO, went on record as saying, uh, uh, on, 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 advice of our law, on advice of our lawyers, we can't be accountable to create benefit for all stakeholders because it would violate our fiduciary duty to care only and most about shareholders. And that's the guy who actually drove the BRT to make their commitment to stakeholders. And so, and, that, and he's not the only one, but there are other examples of that. Wells Fargo, you know, et cetera. And so if the biggest financial institutions that have some of the big, most power in the system want to talk about this stuff, but don't actually want to do it, then there's a decent argument that we're going to need uh, uh, public policy to say, hey, you know what? This is just going to be uh, rules of the road. You got to wear your seatbelt. This is like a seatbelt for the economy. We all got to put on our seatbelts which means we're going to make ourselves and others around. We got to stay under the speed limit and we got to wear our seatbelts to protect ourselves and others. And we're going to create a speed limit and, uh, and seatbelts and some guardrails for our economic system. And we're going to make it true for everybody. 
Um, and that way you don't have to worry about it. To your point earlier, Jonah, you don't have to worry about um, the, the game theory and prisoner's dilemma of, of like, oh, well, if, if I can be a free rider, I'll just be the last to do it, which will give me X number of more years to be unfettered, fully competitive while they're all constrained by all this other stakeholder junk. You eliminate all of that, that potential gamesmanship and just say, it's, it's the new rules for everybody, guys. And now go, go, now go compete the heck out of each other, but within, within these parameters. And so um, it took 15 years for B-Lab to like cross that bridge but but B Lab did last year, and now we're starting to see a lot of other people, interestingly in the U.S. on both sides of the aisle, recognize the value of that, and some interesting legislation uh, 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 up in the U.K. called the Better Business Act, that is is similarly calling for it to be a requirement for businesses over a certain size to operate this way, because um, it, it's better business. It's better for our workers. It's better for our communities, right? It's it's going to be long term better for the economy. And so, let's just let's just fast forward and 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 build a better mousetrap. Well, I'm I'm happy to end it there. This has been fascinating and a, a lot a lot to chew on. And I'm I'm so glad that we were able to have this conversation. You got it, Jonah. Thanks so much. It's pretty cool My that pleasure. you're doing it. You Thank, got it you. Thank you. Thank you. Speak soon.